I'm presenting this video as an original and I believe decisive answer to the question, why and how people make themselves unhappy. It is a paradigm shift in our understanding of our negative emotions. Now, I created this video with a certain kind of audience in mind. I'm interested in those of you who've developed an aversion to repackage cliches as to how to become happy. Those of you who are tired of psychological quizzes and inventories designed to give you a deeper understanding of what is wrong with you. Those of you who become disenchanted with motivational seminars and presentations having to do with realizing your potential, improving your coping skills, and raising your self-esteem. I am especially interested in those of you who are looking for a jargon-free, strictly earth-based psychological explanation as to how we really become unhappy and what to do about that. Well, if you're still watching me, I guess I found my audience, so let me introduce myself. My name is Peter Spinagotti. I'm a native of New York City where I was a psychotherapist and marriage counselor for 30 years. I'm now a life coach and I've written a book called Explaining Unhappiness. For those of you who'd like to know more about me or my book, my website is explainingunhappiness.com. Now I'd like to begin by telling you how I came to write my book. As a therapist dealing with troubled souls for many years, it seemed to me that despite people's presenting complaints and however differently they expressed their dissatisfaction and in where there was, they were all unhappy. And that meant that people in my line of work were really in the unhappiness business in the same way that a physician in the illness business. So I started to think about the possibility of there being a psychological common denominator without which people could not be unhappy. And I think it will be of enormous interest for you to know that I discovered such a psychological common denominator. That's what led to the writing of my book. It also led me to become a life coach because I thought by becoming a life coach, I can officially impart what it is I learned as to why people be unhappy. Now, normally, a book with my subject matter falls into a literary genre called self-improvement. So at the very outset, I'd like to tell you my book has absolutely nothing to do with self-improvement. But why is that? Well, the whole self-improvement industry can only exist because it accepts as its bedrock presupposition people are defective require improvement. As it happens, that is a self-defeating fiction, but more about that later. In any case, you may have noticed in the last, oh, maybe 15 or 20 years, there's been an absolute deluge of books written on the subject of happiness. At last count, Amazon has 17,000 book titles containing the word happiness, but you'd be hard put finding many books dealing explicitly with the subject of unhappiness. And so self-help books are usually happiness studies. What they try to do is to specify the conditions that are most conducive to a happy life. They spell out the possible connections, let's say, between happiness and one's marital status, one's financial situation, one's religious affiliation, and even the possibility that climate and geography may have something to do with it. And when these books are not happiness studies, they are essentially instruction manuals. So what they try to do is help you to realize your potential, help you to become more successful, and generally help you become better at acquiring things and accomplishing things. And although these pursuits are perfectly worthwhile, I mean, there's no reason why you wouldn't want to live in a nicer house, become more successful, and improve your social relationships. They really have nothing to do with happiness, unhappiness, if you will. But why is that? Because after all is said and done, unhappiness is a state of mind. It is portable. It travels where you travel. It exists independently of the circumstances of your life. 
And although improving the circumstances of your life would make life more pleasurable, more convenient, it has absolutely nothing to do with unhappiness. Because as I say, unhappiness is an internal matter. And so I would compare their efforts, however well-intentioned, to a doctor writing out a prescription for an ailment that has never been diagnosed. You probably have heard the old joke where a man walks into a doctor's office, raises his arm and says, it hurts when I do this, doc. And the doctor says, well, don't do that. Well, unhappiness is like that. Well, not quite like that, because raising his arm could be symptomatic of a physical ailment, and unhappiness is never an ailment. And so I would describe an unhappy person as someone who's holding their breath while simultaneously complaining about the fact that they can't breathe. And if you follow my analogy, self-help books are trying to give you breathing lessons when the very act of holding your breath presupposes you already know how to do that. So in order to solve the problem of unhappiness, therefore, there's nothing to do but something to undo, nothing to improve, nothing to pursue, but something to stop doing. And the question that ought to engage us is, why are we holding our breath? Why are we making ourselves unhappy? And that question deserves an answer. Now, despite what I said, some of you don't really believe you do make yourselves unhappy, but that is an illusion that I will describe you later on. In any case, in order to solve the problem of unhappiness, we'd have to know a lot more about its psychology. If you were to ask anyone, well, what do you mean when you say you're unhappy? They would, without exception, say that they're feeling bad. And if you were to pursue that question even further, well, what do you mean by feeling bad? They would invariably say that they're feeling in a way that they don't want to feel, and if it were possible to feel otherwise, they would choose to do so. I think that's a pretty good working definition of what we mean when we say we're unhappy. Now, in order to complete our understanding of unhappiness, let's consider what are clearly unhappy states of mind, namely our negative emotions. Negative because they're feeling bad states. Now, millions of words have been written on the subject of our emotions, but to this day, they have remained essentially a mystery. My intention is to demystify what has always been mysterious. Now, in order to explain an emotion, three things have to be understood. What takes place in our head, what takes place in our bodies, and how these two elements are related to the world of external events. What also has to be explained is the sequence of these events, what comes first, second, and third in the series. Now, as to what takes place in our head, most people believe that emotions are essentially feelings somewhat separate and different from what we do in our heads. Although, when we experience an emotion, the word experience implies that there is something going inside our heads in addition to having feelings in our bodies. But how these two elements are related have been debated by psychologists for decades. Does what takes place in our head precede whatever feelings we may have on our bodies? Or is it the other way around? In any case, that would have to be explained. Now, as to what takes place in our bodies? Well, emotions never appear in isolation. They seem to be a jumble of negative feelings that combine and replace each other with such ease. Now, it's very difficult to know when one emotion begins and another one ends. It's sort of, they have sort of meandering, evanescent quality. And that too has to be explained. And finally, most people believe that people and events in the external world cause them to have an emotional response what's generally described as a gut reaction. Now, if it is true that people and events cause us to have an emotional response, well, there's not very much we can do about that because most of the people and events that impinge on our lives are not solicited by us. And even the people that we do invite onto our lives can't be guaranteed to treat us the way we will be treated. And if all this, 
the results are most generally described as a gut reaction. Well, then we're completely lost because a gut reaction, as you may know, is a reflex. And reflexes are, by definition, beyond any cognitive control. Nothing that we do in our heads can change that. So let's see what really does go on when we experience an emotion. Now, I think a good way to start is to select a specific negative emotion, a specific unhappy state of mind. I think jealousy would qualify. It's a very unhappy state of mind. And while we're at it, let's create a situation where such an emotion might arise. Imagine a woman at a party. She observes her husband talking to this very attractive woman. She experiences a knot in her stomach that informs her that she's become jealous. Now, if you were to ask her, how did you become jealous? She would probably say, well, had my husband not been talking to this very attractive woman, I would not have become jealous. So in her mind, the sequence of events would be as follows. What took place in the external world, which in this case is the husband talking to the attractive woman, produces a knot in her stomach, something, a gut reaction, something that takes place in her body, which is almost simultaneously followed by the awareness that she's become jealous, something that takes place in her head. So let's see what really does go on when we experience a negative emotion, which in this case is jealousy. Now, what I'm about to explain, I'm not offering as a point of view or a theory. I'm submitting it as a definitive account as to how jealousy can only occur. Now, I'd like to start my analysis by quoting a line from Shakespeare. In his play Othello, he has a character make the following statement. She says, they are not jealous for the cause, but they are jealous because they are jealous. And Shakespeare had that exactly right. Now, what does Shakespeare mean when he said they are not jealous for the cause? Well, what he's saying is what happens in the external world, so-called cause, which in this case is the husband talking to a very attractive woman, does not cause someone to become jealous. What he's saying is they are jealous because they are jealous. By that he means that something residing in the head of the jealous person and Shakespeare had that exactly right. What I'd like to do right now is to spell out in more precise detail what Shakespeare intuitively knew to be true. So as to the question, what resides in the head of a jealous person? Well, in order to become jealous, one of the first things a jealous person has to do is to compare themselves to somebody who they have decided is their superior, someone who they have decided is more attractive, more vivacious, more intelligent, something like that. But even before that, she had to do something else. She had to believe that she herself was not good enough. In a word, she had to believe that she was bad. Now, the belief that she is bad predisposes her not to observe the events of the world, but to perceive them. Now, we know perception is a subjective, selective process. So when the jealous lady is perceiving her husband talking to this very attractive woman, that event is being filtered to how she sees herself. It's an event that simply confirms what she already believed about herself. It's an event that simply triggers, catalyzes a belief that she had learned at some earlier point in her life. And the failure to recognize the difference between a cause and a catalyst produces an illusion, what philosophers call a post hoc fallacy, which means, after this, therefore because of this, after my husband was talking to the attractive woman, he caused my jealousy. When in point of fact, what caused her to become jealous, what caused her to feel bad, was the belief that she was bad. Now think for a moment. Would it be possible for anyone ever to experience jealousy unless they first believed that they were insufficient, unless they first believed that they were bad? 
I think you would have to agree it would be impossible otherwise. Now, all I've done so far is explain one unhappy state of mind, one specific negative emotion, but I have a much more ambitious project in mind. After all, I'm trying to explain the whole phenomenon of unhappiness. Now, in order to do that, let's return to the party that Jealous Lady was attending. Now, we know that Jealous Lady believes that she's not good enough, that she's bad. When she focuses on the attractive other lady, she experiences jealousy. But given that same mindset, given that same belief, all she would have to do to experience another negative emotion is to shift her focus. Suppose she decides to focus on her husband, in which case she will now experience resentment. And suppose she refocuses again on what people may be thinking or what, what about her husband told this very attractive woman, and now she'll experience humiliation. Now you notice, three unhappy states of mind, three separately named negative emotions, but only the focus was different, not the cause. This also explains what I described as the evanescent nature of our emotions. That it's simply a question of believing that we are bad and shifting focus. Now here's what I'd like you to consider. Suppose it turns out this belief that we are bad is the indispensable requirement that prefigures our whole emotional life. That would really be worth knowing. That would mean, in order to solve the problem of unhappiness, in order to solve the problem of believing we're bad or feeling bad, to stop believing that we are bad. Problem is, why does it seem so difficult, virtually impossible, to stop doing that? Now, some of you undoubtedly have formulated an answer to that question, but with due respect, you're not even close. The real reason why we find it so impossible to stop believing that we are bad should and will astonish you. Now, it occurs to me that some of you do not really believe that what we do in our head always precedes whatever feelings we have in our bodies. Some of you may believe that emotions originate as visceral feelings capable of identifying our emotions. And beyond that, they have a certain logic of their own that can both inform and enlighten us as to what's going on inside our head. So, let's take a closer look at these visceral feelings. Now, this visceral feelings are, after all, bodily sensations, commonly and biologically known as stress. Now, from a purely biological point of view, stress is not only not bad, it's both normal and necessary for human existence. As this most famous researcher, Dr. Hans Sodium, once said, only the dead are without stress. What the average person means when they use the word stress is they're stressed out, which is to say it's a feeling of distress. Now, as it happens, stress can only be experienced as distress when it is worked over by something in our heads. Well, how do we know that? Now, you probably have never heard of a scientific discovery known as the General Adaptation Syndrome. What this discovery has conclusively established is that whatever the exposure, whether you're having a tooth extracted, whether you're experiencing an orgasm, whether you just broke your leg or were notified that you won the lottery, what happens viscerally is the same. If you were to examine a body undergoing stress, all you could know is that it is a non-specific response to a change or demand. Other than readjusting and adapting to a change of demand, our gut tells us nothing. It cannot discriminate if what is going on is pleasant or unpleasant. Now, let me repeat that. It cannot discriminate if what is going on is pleasant or unpleasant. So when we are told that emotions are a question of feelings and that we ought to get in touch with those feelings, we may be in very bad advice. What we ought to be getting in touch with is what we're believing. In other words, a feeling is an embodiment of a belief. 
Now, in order to solve the problem of unhappiness, therefore, we can't afford to be less than experts as we come to believe, and in particular because that we're bad. Now, Bertrand Russell, one of the smartest guys of the 20th century, said, believing is the most mental thing we do. And he's right. But we don't believe that simply because a genius said so. We can prove that and confirm that in our everyday life. When you open your eyes this morning, you got out of bed. Why? Because you believe you could. And why did you do that? Because you believed you had other things to do. You went into your bathroom, reached for a toothbrush, and you put the toothbrush in your mouth as opposed to your eye. Why? Well, because you believed your mouth was below your nose. And why did you do that? Well, because you believed you were practicing good dental hygiene. You're watching your monitor. Why? Because you believed you knew how to turn it on. You're sitting on a chair. Why? Because you believed it would support your weight. And why did you do that? because you believed that it would be more comfortable in standing up. Now, we can microanalyze our beliefs indefinitely because all our beliefs rest on countless other beliefs. And the reason we're not aware of virtually all our beliefs is because what we believe will happen almost always happens. In 99.99% of everything we believe, the outcome coincides perfectly with our expectation. So what we can say with certainty Whatever we do in our heads, whatever we mean by human consciousness, it is about believing. Now, in order to complete our understanding of how we come to believe what we believe, several questions have to be answered. Well, are we born with the belief that we are bad, or is that a belief that we acquire? And if we do acquire it, how do we acquire it? And secondly, is there a limit to what we're capable of believing? Well, as to the first question, a feral child living in the wild with no human contact does not have self-esteem issues, let alone self that condemns itself. But for further evidence we're not born with that belief, all we would have to do is observe a two-year-old. A two-year-old lives completely in the here and now. They are not self-reflective. Although they're able to identify the image in the mirror, what they're looking at is never seen as unacceptable. Check back later in their development, no manner of things will be seen as unacceptable. Now she will come to believe that her nose is too big. He will come to believe he's too short. She will come to believe that she's not pretty enough. He will come to believe that he's not athletic enough. They will come to believe that they're not popular enough, not smart enough, not talented enough, and so it goes. Well, that will lead us to believe that the reason why these negatively held beliefs exist is because they are the result of social exposure. Now, regardless of one's family or cultural background, with the possible exception of some Primitive societies, all societies teach their young in subtle and not so subtle ways that they are defective and require improvement. Well, that will lead us to believe that the reason why these beliefs are held is because they're taught. Well, that doesn't quite work because we don't believe everything that we're taught, nor do we necessarily retain everything we formerly believed. Well, that would suggest we're completely free to believe whatever we want. It would seem so. I mean, after all, we can believe in God or not, we can believe in string theory or not. We can believe in global warming or not. We can believe in Bigfoot. We can believe in UFOs. We can even believe that the world is flat because not even evidence can force us to believe, believe what we don't want to believe because what counts as evidence is further dependent on what we believe counts as evidence. Carl Sagan once said, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And that's quite true. Well, that would suggest 
that we are completely free to believe whatever we want? Well, the answer might surprise you. No, we're not. There's one inescapable limitation. What we can't believe is anything for which there is no redeeming value. What we can't believe when faced with competing beliefs is to choose to believe what we regard as a less rewarding, less satisfying but two. Our brains are hardwired so as to make that impossible. Well, armed with this knowledge qualifies us as being experts on how we come to believe what we believe. And now we're in a position to make probably the most important decision of our life, which is how to stop believing that we are bad. Now, let me remind you, if you stop believing that you are bad, you will have changed your whole emotional life. You can never again experience jealousy, resentment, humiliation, rage, envy, and any number of named and nameless other negative emotions. If you stop believing that you are bad, you will have ceased apologizing for yourself for the rest of your life. If you stop believing that you are bad, you have found the holy grail of all our psychological struggles. You will have found self-acceptance. I repeat my offer. Not a single one of you will have accepted my invitation. Some of you may resist by invoking your personal history, but that doesn't make any sense because your personal history consists of experiences contaminated with the belief they were flawed. It would be as pointless to ask a formerly blind person to give an account of their visual history. Some of you may resist by saying that if you believe that there was nothing wrong with you, that would be tantamount to saying that you're perfect and that would be abnormal and you'd be correct. It would be abnormal, but you ought not to be terribly impressed by what is normal. Abraham Maslow, an important psychologist of the second half of the 20th century said, what is normal is the psychopathology of the average. I think you can appreciate the word abnormal is simply another code word for being bad. And some of you may resist by saying, if you believe that there was nothing wrong with you, there'd be no constraints and you'd run amok and you'd end up doing some pretty bad things. But that, but that suggestion would only come about because the person raising that suspicion already believed that they were bad to begin with. As a matter of fact, just the opposite would occur. If you stop believing that you were bad, you will have transformed the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you would cease to be a prescription of how to become good, but a description of someone who didn't believe they were bad. Think for a moment. Anyone who didn't condemn themselves, anyone who was self-accepting, would such a person ever be tempted to demean and abuse another human being? And some of you may be even annoyed by the question, and you'd be onto something, because unbeknownst to you, You've been asked to answer a question that has never been adequately answered before, but that is about to change. To begin with, the belief that we are bad is manifestly an act of self-punishment. Now, the need for punishment has not gone unnoticed by others. You don't have to be a Freudian to acknowledge that he was an observational genius. He said, the greatest obstacle to our psychotherapeutic efforts is the need for punishment. And he's right. But what he didn't know that the need for punishment, which is the equivalent of believing that we are bad, is a paradox, and a paradox that cannot be solved. Now, don't be alarmed. I didn't take you all this way to present a problem for which there is no solution. But happily, there is a resolution, perhaps more precisely, a dissolution. This is not a trivial semantic distinction, as you will see.
Now, in order to achieve their resolution, three questions have to be answered. Well, first of all, what is a paradox? How is the belief that we are bad qualify as a paradox? And finally, how do we resolve a paradox? Well, that's the first question. What is a paradox? Bertrand Russell, that very smart gentleman I mentioned earlier, spent a good deal of his professional life studying paradoxes. A paradox is a self-referential statement, a statement that refers to itself. One of the paradoxes that he struggled with is the infamous Lias paradox, which is a negative self-referential statement, a statement that refers negatively to itself. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Lias paradox, let me explain. If I make the statement, I am a liar, and that statement is true, then that statement is false because I just told you the truth. On the other hand, if I am a liar, everything I say is a lie. And so the statement, I am a liar, is a lie, and therefore true. In brief, if the statement is true, then the statement is false. If the statement is false, then the statement is true. I hope I haven't given you a headache, but that is what's meant by a paradox. Now, as to the second question, how does the belief that we are bad qualify as a paradox? Earlier I said our brains are hardwired so as to make it impossible to believe anything for which there is no redeeming value. That when faced with competing beliefs, it is impossible for us to choose what we believe is the less satisfying, the less rewarding of the two. An analogy. No one has ever been on a horse believing that horse would lose. And no one has ever believed anything that they didn't think was going to pay off. And so what follows from that, that if we're still struggling to let go of the belief that we are bad, what that necessarily means is that the belief we are bad has to be more beneficial, more satisfying than not believing it. And so the question is, how is believing that we are bad more beneficial, more satisfying than not believing it? Now you notice the answer does not come easily. We are stuck. But if we refine that question, we can get ourselves unstuck. So to the question, what are you afraid it would say about you if you stopped insisting that you were bad and simply declared and stated that there was nothing wrong with you? The answer never varies. If you did not believe that you were bad, you were afraid that would mean that you would be arrogant, conceited, egotistical. Pick your own self-deprecating label. In other words, you believe that you were bad because that's what you believe will prevent that from happening. It will allow you to think of yourself as humble, self-effacing, and modest. In other words, you believe that you are bad because that's what you believe will make you good. Now, my eureka moment came when it occurred to me that the belief that we are bad is also a negative self-referential statement. But in this instance, it's not merely a logical problem, but a psychological one. If you believe that you are bad will make you good, that can never happen because you also happen to believe that if you are good, that will make you bad. And the reason why human beings have found it impossible to stop believing that they are bad is because that belief contains two beliefs that are not loggerheads with another, while simultaneously valuing and hating what they believe. Needless to say, that anyone trying to live their lives according to that damn if you do, damn if you don't, don't recipe is what makes us unhappy. It is a catch-22 can even drive some of us crazy. There is a double-bind theory of schizophrenia that runs as follows. A father tells his son what to do. The son does it. And the father slaps him and says, why do you do everything I tell you to do? Well, unhappiness is like that. Made all the more schizophrenic because the participants, both the punisher and the punished, are one and the same person. If I were a Zen master asked to formulate this problem in the form of a koan, here's a question I would ask. 
What does it feel like if you were all wrestling with yourself, believing one arm could win without the other losing? And that, in a nutshell, is why believing that we are bad is a paradox. We now come to the question, how do we solve a negative self-referential paradox? Neither Bertrand Russell nor anyone else has ever solved the wise paradox. It has often been dismissed as linguistic nonsense and a meaningless contradiction. Ludwig Wittgenstein, a colleague of Russell and arguably the most important English-speaking philosopher of the 20th century, when analyzing what cannot be meaningfully stated, famously said, the problem is seen as the vanishing of the problem. It is worth noting that this effortless action was also espoused by Lao Tzu, a Chinese sage of 2,500 years ago who said, when nothing is done, nothing is left undone. You may have noticed that this approach corresponds to my earlier metaphor when I said that in order to be happy, there was nothing to do but simply to stop holding our breath. Now, if 25,000 research papers dealing with the subject of self-esteem and countless other publications aimed at self-improvement have produced less than impressive results and always remained an unfinished business, that is entirely due to two universally held mistaken beliefs, namely that people are bad and that can only be remedied by taking an action to improve themselves. As it happens, human consciousness can be raised, altered, confronted, medicated, meditated, hypnotized, shocked. We can gain any number of insights through therapy, but all their systems of interlocking practices and beliefs are palliatives, momentary stopgap measures, very much like putting a bandage on a wound that never heals. What is required, therefore, is a paradigm shift, but a paradigm shift having to do with the most important problem to ever beset human consciousness. What is required is an out-of-the-box rethinking of how we come to view ourselves. As Lao Tzu, our Chinese sage, might have put it, when the self is forgotten, the self is realized. Now, if the quest of psychology has been to specify the conditions that are most conducive to a happy life, well, now it is possible to think that no such conditions exist, because how we view those conditions is what makes us unhappy, and further, how we view them depends on how we view ourselves. Now, unless we embrace this point of view, Unless we stop insisting that there's something wrong with us, that we are bad, we will continue to live our lives in an unremitting fog of self-reflective contradiction. Now, what I have said for most of you will not have produced a global transformation in your consciousness. If what I have said has not produced an epiphany, a lot of because for millennia, for thousands of years, the dogma of flawed human nature has been so rigidly ingrained in us. Even if I manage to convince you that the belief we are bad is an insoluble paradox and the source of all our unhappiness, well, give that time to marinate. Be patient. Treat what you have learned as germinating seeds that will naturally filter your everyday consciousness. Now, in order to help that along, it might be useful to, to restate three axiomatic truths. Axiom number one. People and events do not cause us to feel bad. They simply catalyze our pre-existing belief that we are bad. Axiom number two, the belief that we are bad, like all beliefs, can never be forced upon us. We can only believe what we believe has redeeming value. We can only believe what we believe will pay off. And axiom number three, believing that we are bad, feeling bad are synonymous. 
Not only to reinforce the idea that believing that we are bad, feeling bad, and unhappiness are insoluble paradoxes that will never pay off. Whenever you are unhappy, whenever you are rethinking a painful memory or anticipating a dire future, there are three equivalent, well, let's call them mantras that can help rescue you. Mantra number one, believing that you are bad will never lead to you believing that you are good. And equivalently, mantra number two, feeling bad will never lead to you feeling good. And mantra number three, unhappiness will never bring about happiness. Now this last mantra also serves as a capsule answer to the question that this video promised to answer, namely, how and why are people unhappy? And the answer is, people are unhappy because they believe unhappiness would bring about happiness. This has to qualify as the most pernicious cognitive dissonance ever contrived by the human mind. Now, for those of you who would like a more exhaustive analysis of what we've talked about in this video, I suggest you read my book. For those of you who'd like to engage my coaching services, I can be reached at 631-424-0202.